What's up and welcome back to a new episode of Real Ballers Read. This is Janet Miles with new mics, new yes, equipment. Sir. We're feeling good. We're feeling looking good. good. We're sounding good. And we are so excited for this episode today. Um, thanks so much for listening. And we hope you've had a great start to year so far. Miles, how has it been going for you? Yeah, man. The year is going super great. I feel like I'm in kind of a resolution mode, meaning I'm trying to really uh, meet all of my, my goals and yeah, really just get some momentum in terms of my sleep and in my routines in general yeah. for the day. So really excited about everything going on. Yeah, that's fire. Fire, is there anything uh, particularly exciting for you that you're looking forward to? Yeah, I'm going on a trip to Ghana next week. Exactly. My first yeah. time going to Africa. Yeah. So that should be really interesting. I'm planning to work while I'm there too. Okay. And still to have the time to be in another place, even though it's not wholly vacation, is still going to be totally life-changing and mm-hmm. mind-blowing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, our big last trip was to Eastern Europe last summer. Um, and that was that was a blast. That was super interesting and very uh, thought-provoking in a, lot of, in a lot of funny ways. Right. So, yeah, I hope you have a lot of fun uh, in West Africa, man. Really enjoy it. Yeah, it will yeah. be a good week. I think that's a good amount of time for travel. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. yeah. What about you, though? How's the start of the year been going? Oh, it's crazy good. I mean, as we talked about a couple weeks ago mm-hmm. uh, before the interview with Dr. Ewing, I mean, I was talking about the importance of sleep and just generally getting better with that. I would say as an update for you and all our listeners that that has been going pretty well. You mm-hmm. know, uh, Part of it is definitely that I have started swimming a lot more and – you know, I've done swimming in the morning, in the afternoon, and in the evening. I'm still trying to figure out the timing of it. But across the board, I always feel great when I swim. And it also makes it a lot easier for me to go to bed at night. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's been, like, a really nice plus. Mm-hmm. And luckily, having a partner in Simone who's also on the same page as us with just generally improving her sleep and waking up earlier in the day, uh, it always helps to have, like, support like that. So. Right. I say off to a great start. Um, my grad program just started last week too, which is crazy. So, you know, just learning how to balance all of the reading that I want to do on my own, as well as all the reading that I get to do for the program too, mm-hmm. just balancing all of those kinds of uh, mm-hmm. responsibilities. Mm-hmm. So tell me a little bit more about the uh, story for how you came up with the idea for this episode. How did you come across the I say that you want to talk about, that, that we're going to talk about. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, I mean, you know, you have the the larger part of the story maybe because uh, this essay by Zadie Smith, Fascinated to Presume in Defensive Fiction, so is an essay that you put me on to, like, what, uh, two years ago maybe? I think so, yeah, yes. Because, you know, looking at the date on it now, it's definitely from 2019. Mm-hmm. And at this point, uh, I know that you were enthralled with Zadie Smith as a writer. Um, I don't know how much of like how much how deep you got into her body of work, mm-hmm. uh, but you know she was one of those people for you that was so impressive as someone who could write incredible fiction and then also some of the sharpest 
most clear and interesting nonfiction as well, mm-hmm. you know, and from last week interviewing Dr. E. Viewing, that was an incredible uh, conversation that we had. If you're listening, go check that one out. It was fire. But she recommended two essays, Poetry is Not a Luxury and The Transformation of Silence into Language and Action, both by Audre Lorde, 1977 essays. And talking about those essays with her, thinking about how much of an influence those essays have had on me, I was like, wow, let me go back to the archives, to this old wreck that Miles gave me like two years ago and get get into what Zadie Smith was talking about. Uh, the timing was kind of perfect because we were hearing from our uh, Bookstagram bros, the books are pop culture, yeah. uh, Reggie and Achilles, shout out to y'all, uh, about a recent conversation that they were having on their show about preferences for fiction or nonfiction. And I was like, I wonder what Zadie Smith has to say on this, you know, and I read it. I was blown away. And I immediately was like, yo, Miles, like, I think we got to talk about this. It's great. It's short, but it, there's so much in here. Mm-hmm. And luckily with you rereading it, you were down for it. So, yeah, man, I can't even remember the first time that I read this essay now, kind of like what Dr. Ewing was saying about the first time that she read Audrey Lord. Oh, yeah she was saying it in the context of her reading it a lot of times Mm -hmm. and I've read it probably a couple of times. And yeah, as, as you were saying though, I was deep into Zadie Smith's essays. So I read changing my, my mind, her first book essays, uh, feel free. And then a bunch of just her other unpublished work that she's written for the New York review of books and other publications. And, I think this one in particular, though, stood out because it's not that she avoids having political stances, but the nuance of her writing, it doesn't really afford them well. And I think it talks about perfectly just in this first paragraph alone why she's not necessarily a political person. But I would say this is her most, uh, not even argumentative essay, but just she's really trying to draw a line in the sand and really trying to help just think about what novels mean, what fiction means for people. And where do you want to start? You want to start yeah, on just this well, first page? I mean, for sure. I mean, it's funny how you say that she draws a, a line in the sand. It's kind of like drawing a curve even just in terms yeah, of like yeah. how, uh, how complex and nuanced you said that, uh, that Zadie Smith is being in this essay. And I think part of it too is that some of the story that she describes is how fiction used to like offer a certain purpose to society, Mm -hmm. which it might not anymore, right? Mm -hmm. Just off of how the novel as well as uh, people at large have changed over time, Mm -hmm. right? And so it's it's really interesting to see how she brings that together. Um, I would love to start just with actually reading out yeah. the first paragraph because right. I think as you said like it, it does really set the tone um, and it also just gives you a great sense of like how she writes just how yeah. amazing her writing is where you just want to keep reading it are you reading or you want me to read it oh uh, you can go ahead and read oh, it. okay yeah. I've always been aware of being an inconsistent personality of having a lot of contradictory voices knocking around my head as a kid I was ashamed of it 
other people seemed to feel strongly about themselves to know exactly who they were. I was never like that. I could never shake the suspicion that everything about me was the consequence of a series of improbable accidents, not least of which was the 400 trillion to one accident of my birth. As I saw it, even my strongest feelings and convictions might easily be otherwise. Had I been the child of the next family down the hall or the child of another century, another country, another God, my mind wandered. Mm. Mm. All right. So even reading this, even hearing you read it out right now, I'm thinking about things that I hadn't noticed before. Uh, but I'm curious for you, Miles. You might not remember the first time that you read this, mm-hmm. but even reading it out loud, what is your general impression from that paragraph? You know, reading it again, I just, that feels so much like me. Uh, I have a pretty inconsistent uh, political personality, and times I'll sound like the most radical liberal, other times the exact opposite, right? (laughs) And I've never really felt at home in any one place. And it was more about not being defined by a term or a, or a title and kind of, as she says, lower on the page too, I always just kind of took on the opinions of whatever book I had read most recently. And that just comes with the territory of, always wanting to have your mind changed and always willing to see things from a different point of, of view. Yeah. Well, I mean, what's interesting too, though, is how for the both of you, for me, definitely uh, someone that relates to that as well. There's so much that's fluid about our lives and our personality, mm-hmm. uh, how we identify, especially as young people growing up. Um, but I think part of it too, with what you're saying about books that you're reading is that I think there's a real yearning to understand and have some sort of grasp on things. And books obviously offer that because there are a lot of books where someone is very argumentative, right? And they're trying to make a case. They're trying to convince you of it. And there's something almost satisfying about reading something and Mm -hmm. truly believing, oh, yeah, this is for sure 100% true. But then what happens, right? You close the book, you read something else, and you're like, wait a second, everything that I thought of until now was wrong or I was thinking mm-hmm. about it in a different way. And then you want to be convinced by somebody else. Mm-hmm. And that that's just a dynamic that I've noticed is how, uh, for me in particular, right, part of feeling insecure is that you're constantly looking for something external to yourself to make you feel more secure, mm-hmm. but usually doesn't last that long. What have those things been for, for you? Definitely, definitely books and arguments. Yeah. Uh, I think even sports, um, different activities that I've been really involved in for, mm-hmm. you know, a bit of time and everything so, seems so clear. It's like, oh, yeah, I'm going to commit everything to playing basketball or yeah. I'm going to commit myself to history, right, or mm-hmm. some sort of theme or topic. And then what happens? Like, after a few months, I just kind of drop it and mm-hmm. things change. I change. People change. But mm-hmm. – it is interesting seeing that dynamic play out in books and how you read. Yeah. Yeah. Who do you think? So here on the first page too, she talks about how she always 
envisioned her, her life as someone else, as a neighbor, um, you know, wonder what it would like to be Polish or Ghanaian or Irish or Bengali. And then she starts to name how through novels, through fiction, she felt she was all these characters to Celie or David Copperfield. So who or what novel would you say was the first time you really felt seen or really enjoyed the experience of living through another character's eyes? Oh, wow. Mm. I mean, I think that was everything about what reading was for me growing up. Mm. We just read so many different books where you're constantly seeing the world from another person's perspective. Mm -hmm. And that was part of what was so fun is that you could take on Captain Underpants for like a day. Calvin and Hobbes was another really special one, I think. And going into high school, let's say, the books that I was really into were more like fantasy. Like I was really deep into the Twilight books. Um, Wait, so you thought you were Edward or... Yeah, yeah, or, yeah, no, well, no, yeah. so like, you know, Edward and Jacob, I guess, yeah, in that case. Yeah. And then, uh, and at the same time in school, I think I learned to separate myself from the people that I was reading, um, that I was reading about, and in a way kind of lost touch with what it meant to really step into another person's shoes through reading. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that is what is funny, I think, about even a book like To Kill a Mockingbird, where a lesson of the book is to think in someone else's perspective, you know, mm. the whole walking a mile, another person's yeah, shoes. Yeah. And yet how much do we actually get to practice that in academic environments? I don't think that much. Um, and so I definitely did lose touch with that kind of potential, that possibility, mm-hmm. that, that exercise through reading. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't really until the podcast, you know, that we, that we started bringing on more people to talk about fiction where I would say in recent years, the color purple is for sure a book where I was imagining myself as everybody in that story, just off of how strong the characters are, how there's so much clarity for the the time and place that's happening. And yet still so much that's kind of unknown and mysterious, right? About mm-hmm. the, the specific time and place mm-hmm. where uh, I just really felt attracted to imagining what it must be like to be any character in that in that story. Mm. No, that's uh, that's fascinating. Yeah, yeah. I mean, a recent novel read for you was Native Son. So, would yeah. you say that you experienced that kind of uh, that kind of voyeuristic like exercise through through reading and putting yourself in? Another person's shoes. Yeah, I think I read novels in a little bit more of a detached state. And I think possibly that's because of the type of books that I've read and the characters. Like, I'm not trying to really relate to Bigger Thomas. I saw how he was an interesting and misunderstood character. And I shared and related to some of that. And I guess that is what she's saying in this essay too is you don't have to ever fully encapsulate or 
feel seen by a character, but you can always feel some overlap in their humanness, mm. no matter if they are of a different race, class, background, thing, right? I would say the characters that I felt most memorable, though, are from your blues and like like mine, wow. from B.B. Moore Campbell. And I think yep. just the contrast of who she put in that book, given the context of what happened, plus the time span in which we saw those characters' lives, I think made that one really special, really interesting. Mm. Uh, you know, she basically traces the character of like a Carolyn Bryant, you know, the person, the woman who Emmett Till apparently whistled at through her whole life, right? And that's someone that I would not want to relate to, let alone think about at, at all intimately. And yet it's kind of forced upon you in a way where you still have to recognize them as human. Right. And I think that alone was so mind-blowing to feel something for someone that I wouldn't have. Yeah. Um, yeah, and I mean, what's funny about your blues and like mine too is that it opens so beautifully, right? Yeah. Talking about, you know, the birds and the sun and the cool breeze and the music of, you know, black folks singing. And, you know, I'm like, wow, this is such a great way to like start out a novel and then it turns out that B.B. Moore Campbell is writing from the perspective of uh, the the white woman who's like yeah. the fictionalized version of uh, Carol, Carol, Carol uh, Carolyn Bryant. Carolyn yeah. Bryant. Yeah. And I immediately am like, whoa, like I was just appreciating this perspective, but it was a white woman's perspective where I'm like, dang, like, you know, it's just, it, it, it's, uh, it makes you feel some type of way. Right. Mm -hmm. And I think it's, it, in a way it almost uh, compels us to, come face to face with our resentment and our hesitations and our uh, ugliness that we feel towards other people and ourselves sometimes. Mm -hmm. um, but what I really, I agree with you about the, your blues ain't like mine and how relatable a lot of those characters are because Campbell does such a good job of like showing the interiority of each person mm -hmm. as she goes through the story. Mm -hmm. I think it's a, it's exactly the same reason that I love, uh, Toni Morrison's books, mm -hmm. the ones that I've read so far, the novels like mm -hmm. Beloved, Bluest Eye, Song of Solomon. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure it's even, it's definitely the same for Sula, Jazz, or other ones as well. Um, also Home, which was a book that I read a couple months ago. But there, yeah, there's a real sense of understanding and being guided through somebody's interior life and what they're thinking and also what they're showing you through their actions or their feelings, but not necessarily telling you in terms of their background. Mm -hmm. And it just makes for being really blown away by the way that, you know, not only an, a writer can like bring these characters to life, but also for the, for the, all the potential power in reading too. Yeah. Yeah. One of the other lines in this uh, essay that, that brought to mind what you just said was, and I just want to probably read it. I always love just to quote, when I can because of how well it's written. Um, yes. So she, she says here, page eight of, eight of nine, that she has closed novels and stared at their back covers for a long moment and felt known in a way 
I cannot honestly say I have felt known by many real-life interactions with human beings, or even by myself. For though the other may not know us perfectly or even well, the hard truth is that we do not always know our ourselves perfectly or well. Yeah, that that was a crazy and part. That reminded re, reminded me of kind of conversations that we've had about people versus books, and the <laughs> density in which books can express themselves and writers can express them themselves through books is just so much different than an interaction where that kind of feeling is possible, where someone can feel more seen by a book. And in some ways, I kind of think that's like a bad thing, um, where if we're not feeling understood in like most interactions during our day, that we have to turn to a book to feel understood. Mm -hmm. It is one of the joys of reading, but also just, I don't know, it just seems tragic. No, for sure. And yeah. I, I, I've, I mean, obviously we've been talking about this for a while, but I definitely think uh, a lot of my own passion for reading, like passion also being a word for suffering in a way too, is that a lot of it was suffering through feeling like I wasn't seen and heard in any other context. And so I, I developed this trust in books, especially when I'm choosing to read them. I developed this trust that I'll be able to see myself through these books. And I think that was definitely one of the first uh, ideas in this essay that really resonated with me too, was how Zay Smith was saying that I lived in them books and mm -hmm. felt them live in me, right? Mm -hmm. uh, but yeah, I think you're right though, that a lot of it is kind of tragic. I mean, going back to your blues ain't like mine, um, what's so interesting about that one is that everyone, or not everybody, but most people know the story of Emmett Till and how there was no justice really for it at all. People know about Mammy Till, how she you know, had open casket, Jet Magazine put it in their magazines, and then you know that kind of was a big spark catalyst for the civil rights movement. But nobody really thinks about the long-term stories of any of those characters once the news cameras left, right? Once all the once all the people from the north yeah. who were like, look at this crazy story yeah. of this of this Chicago black boy like going down mm -hmm. south, like no one really cared anymore, right? No one followed up with the stories. But Your Blues Ain't Like Mine really does do something as a book that most people never get the opportunity to do, which is like follow a whole group of characters over decades of time. Mm -hmm. And I think maybe that's part of what's tragic as well. And you know, as as true as that Zadie Smith line that you just mentioned is, it's also the fact that, you know, fewer and fewer people are able to actually live a life with friends and that they know and see on a regular basis for decades at a time. Yeah. You know, like our groups and our social life is a lot more incoherent, I would say, uh, in a way where there's many more interactions where we're only going to interact with this person once and never see them again mm -hmm. as opposed to in a book where you can you can get that real intimate look into somebody's life right i think this is one of the fascinating things about meeting writers too you know i would love to interview sadie smith right i was right. thinking about that when reading this essay but then 
it's like there's no way that Zadie Smith can like read or say. I, I've heard her in interviews, right? I know she's a really brilliant person, obviously. Right. right. But there's this all writing is thinking in the past tense, right? So when you're in the present tense, it's just a totally different feeling of wait hold on bro can you yeah. say that again wait explain. yeah no so, no, that no, again. so, so writing that again. writing you just write, said that a little too casually bro no no yeah no, no. like writing is thinking in the past tense so it's not awkward right so when you meet someone and they are thinking their own thoughts you are thinking your own thoughts you all are doing this dance of how to interact with each other and you're learning what the person knows or likes or you can't just monologue in a way that you do when you're writing right i i don't know if that makes okay sense. okay no I'm, it's no, I'm just following. I'm following. yeah yeah I no know. that's all that is all to all to say like i think reading can get you used to just even feeling like you have the right things to say all the time right i, I just feel like I think a lot better when I'm writing because there's just no pressure of things being perfect the first time. Oh, I see. You know what I'm saying? So when you're interacting with, with, with someone, you might not even take the chance to say a thing that you want to say because you're af- uh, afraid of it being not perfect. Oh, I see. Right? But you don't really seem to have that problem, G. You know, you, what do you what I do mean, you like... Like when you're talking with folks, mm-hmm. you'll just be like, I can see it happen in your mind too, where you're just like, you know what? This might be a funny thing. It might yeah. go south, but fuck it. <laughs> and then you just say it. <laughs> and then sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't, you know? Yeah. Like you, I, I would say that you, more than anybody I know, definitely have a very playful attitude towards mm-hmm. conversation. Mm-hmm. And that's what makes you like entertaining and surprising mm-hmm. and fun to talk with. Mm-hmm. But it also, it does have some risk to it. You know what I'm saying? Like, <laughs> <laughs> game of chance right no uh, I just thought of this random Vladimir Nabokov line where he says that everything that he has spoken he has written down b- before so he only like oh, spoken wow. words that he had wrote down it, it, it's a much cooler line than that if I can find the quote I'll pull it up for that's the next crazy. time that's like uh, quite, it was, quite it was a weird, It was a weird flex. Yeah, it's, <laughs> yeah, like, it's a weird, very yeah. weird flex. <laughs> I only, yeah, it was so. It, it was just said in a cool ways. Like I only know what I what I know because I've written it down like a hundred times prior, and I speak from that well of confidence. It was something like that. Interesting. Okay. Like, like, right. Well, like, you know. Like well, for one thing, uh, before I forget, if you're interested in hearing more about your blues ain't like mine, we've been talking about it for a minute. We have a great podcast interview with Hanif Abdurakib about the mm. book. That was his recommendation for right. the podcast. So if you're listening, uh, we highly recommend that one because mm-hmm. it's a great conversation. You can dig more into the book. Um, but you just now reminded me of Trick Mirror by Gia Tolentino, mm-hmm. another great essayist. And you know, she, early on in her book, was talking about how she can't tell if writing is a matter of basically opening herself up to a new idea or learning mm-hmm. or if it's a foreclosure of that process in terms of writing herself into a self-delusion. And 
with what you just said about Nabokov, like you basically, he's basically saying, oh, I wrote this a hundred times mm-hmm. to convince himself that it was true. Yeah. But is that actually just hardening his own take on things or is it somehow allowing him to learn more, right? This is something that I want right. to get into more with the Zadie Smith essays because with all that she's juggling and weaving together, mm-hmm. there are these lines that we'll get into more. Uh, which really just stand out because they're so clear and just short as well, right? Like the one yeah. I'm looking at now, she says, there's always the potential for radical change, mm. right? And so how do we, how do you think about that um, when it comes to like literature and writing? Um, wait, I, What page is that on? Yeah, it's on page three. Oh, yeah. Hmm. So the context here, is kind of her saying uh, through cold cultural idioms, I guess you can say. You do you. Descartes, Shakespeare, is that even though those phrases have been uttered and existed for hundreds of years now, you still have to think for yourself. You still have to... Mm question whether or not that's true audrey lord in reflection to that i i think therefore i am why did she say i feel therefore i can be free Mm -hmm. you know many many folks have came at descartes for feeling like he's separated you know i guess he was dead cartesian dualism (laughs) And, (laughs) and yeah each one of those people decided that they weren't just going to take what he said as whole truth. And I don't know. I think I'm forgetting the Bible verse too. It's probably Ecclesiastes, but it's like there's nothing new under the sun, right? Yeah. And to me, there are things that need to be remembered. Things have been forgotten, and that's why we need to say them again. But I don't know if that would count as a radical change. Oh, no, no, sorry. It is. Um, Because I I feel like certain cultures come with certain fundamental assumptions, which then come with things that you're not thinking about. And and so a radical change for this time in our culture could include things from previous times, but that Mm -hmm. wouldn't mean that it's not a radical change for now. Right, right, right. So, sorry to go back on my own point. No, you got that. I guess where it fits into literature, though, given what I'm saying there is you have to read. Because if you only think about your point of view now, and that's all you see is your culture, your world, everything that that comes with now, you're never thinking about when times were different. You have to remember other times, other parts in history, and explore other points of view from people that are in your world now. Yeah. Why wouldn't you want to to know what what someone else's like life is like? Um, I mean, a, a lot a lot of folks don't, but yeah. Um, yeah. So I guess that's that's where radical yeah. change fits for. No, that, no, for, that's that's for me. That, yeah. That's a great point, bro. And I mean. Um, I'd love to bring in the next part, the next paragraph after that point, because uh, it's it's totally related 
to what you're talking about with reading and thinking for yourself, mm-hmm. which is that she says, Zay Smith says, full disclosure, what insults my soul is the idea popular in the culture just now and presented in widely variant degrees of complexity that we can and should write only about people who are fundamentally, quote unquote, like us, racially, sexually, genetically, nationally, politically, personally, that only an intimate, authorial, autobiographical connection with the character can be the rightful basis of a fiction. I do not believe that. Mm. So real quick, because I because I know you love context. Uh, could you could you back us up real quick to just uh, talk about some of why Zadie Smith wrote this right with American Dirt? Oh, I don't know if that was the specific reason. Oh, OK. Interesting. She Because she doesn't say right in the. I say, yeah. I think given the context of the time, 2019, it was a controversy during that year. Mm. So hard to say if they're directly related. Yeah, yeah. But, but anyway, yes. you like, yeah, yeah, totally. So American Dirt was this book that was published in 2018. And it was written by, I believe, a white Puerto Rican woman named Janine Cummings. And in the book, she writes about the life of a Mexican immigrant. And it was Oprah's book club pick for one of her months. So mm. it became extremely popular. But in it coming mm. really popular, a best-selling novel, you know, as her book club picks do, they become automatic bestsellers. Folks are starting to realize, like, wait, why is this woman writing from this point of view when she's not this very far removed from this, you know, folks were critiquing her use of Spanish in the book, saying things weren't accurate, things weren't correct. And yeah, she had a whole book tour plan that was, I think, canceled because of it. And she said, even the author said that she would reflect on all that was said and was just kind of this big time of situation like Zadie Smith is talking about in the essay of a writer not writing from her point of view specifically Mm -hmm. and the quote-unquote risk of that. And, you know, I was reading some of the good, some of the Goodreads reviews too prior to this podcast. They were really funny and (laughs) I don't know. I think... Some of the reviews are very valid. And I agree with what Zadie Smith is saying. But every reader at the end of the day has the right to choose what they read. And why. And why. The the problem comes in when these books are being pushed and marketed and writers, other Mexican writers feel like they are not getting their voices heard. They're not getting an Oprah book club pick. It's not all about money, but I think these conversations come up when a book is popular. Mm-hmm. If American Dirt <laughs> sold dirt, it was literally sold 10 copies. No one would give a flying F, right? right. But <laughs> it's only when it's selling millions of copies that f- folks worry like, if everyone sees this point of view of what she's saying, everyone's going to think incorrectly. And 
it's not like they are saying saying that they they can also just think that the novel's trash as many of the uh, views did but that's that's kind of where i see the commercial aspect of things really complicating things but Mm. do you feel like i mean yeah do you agree with zadie smith's point or do you feel writers can't right from points of view that aren't theirs right so here's part of what i'm thinking about right mm-hmm. which is that in uh tony morrison's bio doc yeah the right, pieces right, of right. me she has a part there where she's talking about her creative writing classes and how all of her students were real you know they were timid they were shy they were like oh, i don't know i don't know and she's like she's like f what you know like write what you don't know you know and what happened Everybody, and uh, according to Toni Morrison, everybody started writing these crazy stories mm. from the perspectives of uh, people that they might have never interacted with, but just in that practice of compassion, that practice in creative thinking and really imagining yourself in another person's shoes, they were able to write so much more uh, beautifully through that practice, mm-hmm. right? And you know, of course, I'm thinking in my head, you know, a lot of our students are probably uh, white kids that could be writing <laughs> from other perspectives. There's, yeah, exactly, especially right. at Princeton. And there's potentially a lot of uh, a lot of risk in, you know, the way that they might write about them and the way that they might write about different people in destructive or harmful ways. But of course, if no one's really reading them other than uh, Tony Morrison, students in the class, like, where's the conversation around that? It's just, it's similar to what you're saying about attention. And even for Tony Morrison and Beloved, right? Yeah. She read the newspaper clipping of Margaret Garner killing her child in order to avoid having them return to slavery. And she's like, you know what? I'm just not going to research this anymore. You know, like, obviously there's so much culturally that we inherit as black folks that, you know, allowed Toni Morrison to write that story as well as she did connect with it without necessarily having to become some sort of authority on the research for it. Mm -hmm. And and I, what I mean is that, right. She did have to step into other people's shoes as well. She does with every single character that she writes, Toni Mm -hmm. Morrison, but at the same time, like those are still black folks. Right. And I think one dynamic here is that, for so long, it was mostly uh, white people who were writing for other perspectives, like black mm-hmm. folks, like uh, Mexicans, like Asian people, whoever. Whereas now, because more people of the global majority have voices and have the internet and we can shit talk and trash and, <laughs> you know, really tar and feather American dirt and other books that we're not messing with. Like, right. You know, I, I think that things have changed obviously. And I think that it is irresponsible to write from someone else's perspective without accounting for your privilege, for how you might be uh, harming somebody else. I think for one, a lot of this, what you're saying, whether it's, I mean, obviously a lot of it ends up being commercial, but even more fundamentally than that is just the attention that is paid to white authors at the expense of attention that could be given to right other like other kinds of people and mm-hmm. and and the attention and the lack of attention is what really does hurt 
right? If you're talking about the books, if you're incorporating them into your syllabi, if you're bringing them them up in your own smaller book clubs, if we're actually reading books from people of color and learning from them, then that that's that's great right and then and then that'll of course you know cycle into supporting more authors of color as well Mm -hmm. so yeah i I think part of part of what she was saying i for sure agree with but i think part of it as well is that i was also drawing a line in the sand between like Mm -hmm. i guess white writers and black writers or writers of color generally yeah because historically it has been mostly white folks writing for us. Right. And we now, as well as for a long time, have done a great job of writing very clear, incisive stuff from the perspective of white folks. Do we want to do it? Not necessarily, but, you know, at least there's some, like, justice there that isn't necessarily there when white writers write and just reinforce stereotypes or destructive, harmful narratives, you know. Um so, I mean, as a as a reader, I finished this essay thinking, huh, I wonder if Zadie Smith just convinced me to read Moby Dick, right? Or mm. convinced me to read uh, William Faulkner, right? Yeah. Like, I think hmm. I, I've definitely been, right. we can, talk, we can yeah. talk about it. Let's talk about it. Because we have definitely been uh, in this space of wanting to be very intentional about reading, right? like, basically all black authors. And definitely not white authors, right? Like for sure, people glow mm-hmm. majority. I'm. I just finished Amitav Ghosh's book, uh, The Great Derangement. It was incredible, and mm. you know that is for sure the kind of interest that I have right now is just generally familiarizing myself, learning from other people of the global majority around the world, mm-hmm. obviously, and that means you know not like choosing to not pour my attention into white authors, just given all the yeah. attention that they already get in all those ways that we were talking about earlier. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, that that's that's maybe a question that I can pose back to you, right? Has Zadie Smith convinced you to read something different from a different perspective, let alone write from one? So I want to first go back and reflect on what you just said in terms of harm, what does it mean to harm someone in a literary sense? Hmm. That's a, that's a question you're asking me. Hmm. I think that literature exists in a context in a society that is very harmful, harmful for let's take black people in particular if you're talking about U.S. racism, even globally, mm-hmm. uh, anti-blackness, um, anti-Semitism, um, there's many forms of prejudice and violence uh, that's done against people based off of their nationality or their culture, their religion, um, gender, you know, perhaps more than anything else. And there is a way of writing which is either not like not aware or is like somehow participating in like reinforcing negative depictions of people which can either you know I, I think it can very much 
provoke uh, physical senses of endangerment just from the thing. And that's, you know, how trauma works is that it can kind of be triggered by anything um, or something that's particularly specific mm-hmm. to whatever that that harm was. And I think in the case of uh, let's take Gone with the Wind, right? Zadie Smith is talking about how the character of Mammy. Huh? Hattie McDaniel. Yeah, exactly, right? So the specific line that she was bringing up was that Margaret Mitchell, uh, when she published Gone with the Wind, placed a fresh dose of an old poison into the culture that still exists and reached even me at age 12 in my little corner of London. Mm-hmm. So I think that's where the harm is actually spiritually, um, psychologically, like, mentally for people as a culture mm-hmm. right i've started to think more as well inspired by uh reggie and Achille about how books can do work in the culture for you know indefinitely as, as long as they're around and people are still reading them uh i can you know know of a book never have read it and still be influenced by it in multiple ways right but then once i do read it then i'm consciously aware of how I'm being influenced and how that book is working on me and working on other people who participate in reading it. Mm-hmm. So I think that there is a very real power in words and stories for being like a, I don't want to say it's necessarily a starting point, but for sure, like a, a very important node and kind of like center for how things can turn out in reality, you know, and I think it's really, I, you know, with as much, uh, with as much frustration that comes along with people generally wanting to cancel more stories and people and being more critical, I think that there is also something healthy in it in the sense of trying to be as intentional as possible with reducing harm as well as participating in stories that actually make us feel good and that can actually mm-hmm. you know contribute to more positive healthy whole people in mm-hmm. in general you see where i'm going with it i do but i also feel like most novels do have a high amount of drama or trauma yeah and negative a- aspects to them um not wholly negative right no one wants to read anything that is so harm harmful but mm-hmm. i guess i just don't know where the line is there of do you want uh, authors to start like writing trigger warnings at the start of books or is it just people should read what makes them feel comfortable hmm. yeah well you know you're starting to remind me of our conversation with reggie on literature and the new culture wars I mean, for me personally, I love the surprise and I love mm-hmm. the navigating emotions that are brought on by the stories, which I could not have predicted or controlled for. Um, and I, I think that especially when you're reading something that you're choosing to read, you can also know you're also more secure in knowing that you can choose to leave at any point. Mm-hmm. And yeah, uh, I'm not so sure on mm-hmm. full extent of your question, but yeah. 
it's definitely something that I've been thinking about. And, you know, you actually just reminded me because I, I finished Sisters of the Yam this week. And something that Bell Hooks was saying in that book, it's specifically about black women and self-recovery, right? And she, as I've mentioned to you, references a lot of novels along the way. And going through the book, I'm thinking, oh, wow, you know, what here is she showing in terms of the importance of fiction for telling stories, for having characters that people can relate to and also be on the same page about Mm -hmm. in terms of understanding that people can all know like the single story of Sula. You can still have your different perspectives, but everyone can be on the same page about that person in a way that you can't be with real people in our lives, right? Who Mm -hmm. we don't really overlap in the same circles or anything that we were talking about before. Mm -hmm. And, and yet bell hooks is writing this book of nonfiction because she she said this in the book she was like hey fiction is great for telling the stories but end of the day it brings up more trauma it brings up more drama as you were saying mm-hmm. than it does actually practically address how to do anything about it yeah. and that's why she wrote the nonfiction. and even then she was also very much towing the line between self-help, which is generally very individualistic and practical for a specific person, but is completely devoid of the political and social context of who they are. So she was, she was doing a lot. She was doing a lot with that book, but it does kind of bring up what you were just saying about Mm -hmm. fiction uh, being some of that, some of that trauma porn that people, you know, go to and enjoy because it's so, you know, emotional and makes you feel something, right? But isn't necessarily doing anything more than that. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think there are so many layers to this conversation. I think rap, rap representation is just one of them, which is like in the American Dirt case or in the author to what they're writing about cases is the main thing. But as as you're saying too, like publishing is so white as an industry, the folks working in it, and the kinds of books published, like authors are primarily white too. I don't know the numbers on it, but I'm sure it's 70, 80% of all published authors, Mm -hmm. right? And that has been a historical thing too. Obviously, where most writers before the 21st century, probably 99, were all white. So there is an issue of rectifying the injustice of that. And that's when it comes down to what books are we going to market are we going to talk about as a culture to where we hold it up as a book that should be read you know i feel like there's only a handful of books every single year that get any attention at all right and so it feels like it's this zero-sum game of if american dirt is selling well what does that mean for the other Mexican writers that want to tell the same story? It's like they're 
inherently competing with each other instead of being in conversation. Trying to find the difference between is it okay that there are amazing novels, good novels that never get read and popular novels that aren't as good. It seems like we're trying to make sure that the best writing is also the most popular, also written by the right person that we feel comfortable with. So everything's aligned for us to ingest it properly. Mm. Um, and that's just not always the case right? in terms of the representation. Um, I'm actually thinking randomly, too, of some Stanley Crouch essays that I randomly read this week. And he was talking uh, about uh, Joyce Carol Oates' book hmm. that she wrote in the early thousands where she was writing from the point of view of a young black college girl uh, for a point for a time book. And he was saying how incredible it is that like Joyce Carol Oates as a white lady can write from the black point of view because it shows that writers, you know, don't have boundaries and can write from any race and class, kind of like what Zadie Smith is saying too. Mm -hmm. But then interestingly enough, in another essay when he's writing about music, he was saying how upset he, he was when white artists stole black music and stole black sound and they were more popular than the black artists that they stole it from. Oh, I see. So he's so like someone not like a, a fan Janis of Elvis. Joplin or, or an yeah. Elvis or a Led Zeppelin, even that were modeling their whole sound after these black blues singers and right, the whitest style establishment and media in general is going to put the Janis Joplin, is going to put the Led Zeppelin on the pedestal because of how the industry works, because of how culture works. So I thought those were two interesting examples and parallels that he treated differently where the writer is supposed to be this adventurer Mm. and voyeur and wanderer and is supposed to take these risks that possibly other artists can't. Right. So, yeah, you know, another funny book is Black Like Me. I can't remember yeah. the, the, the guy's name right now, but. So, uh, Howard Griffin, John Howard Griffin. Yeah, something like that. But, uh, right, here, here's a guy who's this white dude who's like, you know what, I'm going to use spin, skin pigmentation like therapy in order to make myself darker. There was a scene in the book where he's talking about how he shaved his head to go bald, looked at himself in the mirror, and was like, "Wow, I am a Negro." You know, so he, you know, yeah. he, this was back in the day, so it was alright to say that back then, I guess. <laughs> but yeah, I'm still figuring out where I stand exactly yeah. on the Stanley Crouch dynamic that you just mm-hmm. mentioned. But I bring that up as an example of the lengths that someone, as an adventurer, has gone mm-hmm. in order to literally walk around in the skin of another person, right? Mm-hmm. But even for his case, as much as he may have learned, right? That's <laughs> that's one person. Yeah. That's one that's person. He he was certainly raised not having to worry about being black and then could always just stop taking 
his pills or his his putting on his sun his suntan lotion and then go back to being white, right? Yeah. I think these are the kinds of things that people think about with how there are very real limitations to Yeah, see, I mean that's even tough to say. I was gonna say that there are limitations to our ability to understand mm-hmm. another person's perspective. And there, yet, there are. Yeah, actually and there, they, there, yeah, there are, yeah, there are. And yet at the same time I think maybe Maybe this is part of what Zadie Smith is getting at is that there is this faith or this belief mm-hmm. that there are no limits, right? right? And so maybe maybe that's what we're also talking about here is like what are the limitations to human understanding of other people and mm-hmm. life forms for that matter? Uh, or or are there any? I don't know. There are natural limitations of I cannot be in someone's yeah, body, soul, and know what they're saying or think, thinking, mm-hmm. but can relate. And I think the the problem just comes in when you are relating across a salient identity that history has told us you know, one of the directions of which you're relating has proven to be violent or proven to be negative. So it's John Updike writing about the black characters. Zay Smith is saying are always flat and caricatures and stereotypes. And he's a white guy writing about the black characters, but a James Baldwin writing Giovanni's room, even, you know, he, he, alone says black people understand white people better than they know themselves. Yeah. And yeah. when we hear him say that it feels true, but then totally goes against this understanding of what understanding is or empathy is. Mm-hmm. So I think, and this, this is what she's kind of saying about the, the self too, is that we still don't know what the self is, but the self is kind of a, a illusion, right? It's not, you are not, a separate being like James Baldwin's intimacy with a white person does show a lot about who they are, even if they themselves don't see those parts of themselves as their self. Mm. But it's both Baldwin's view of the person and the person's view of them that creates, you know, this concept of who that person is. It's the perceiver and the perceived. It, like that is a collaboration. That is a right. mu- mu- mutual thing. Yeah. I can't exist without anyone observing me or seeing me. Uh, imagine if I didn't know any people, if I grew up with no humans, I wouldn't yeah, know that wouldn't I exist. Yeah. Yeah. We're, we're right. entirely relational. Genius relational is a collective thing. Zadie Smith, her writing is a collective work. She says it on the first page. You know, she's never been a voice entirely separate from the many voices that she's heard, read, and internalized every day. That literally means you're always an amalgamation of all these things, people. And I think that is closer to the truth than saying, I am my own self. I have not been impacted by my environment like that is a total lie mm-hmm. so but 
I don't know if we're going off the deep in there <laughs> with the philosophy, but we were kind of metaphysics about the difference between reading as just a casual reader and reading as like is uh, inspiring writer, right? As a serious writer, whatever serious means. So, yeah. what do you think is the distinction there? Of you know, is Zadie Smith possibly being too harsh on the casual reader because she's a, I yeah. would say she's a very serious reader yeah has right. has been her whole life right. like reading heavy stuff big books classics not everyone was doing that but it seems mm-hmm. like too like she always wanted to be a writer same with someone like Baldwin who read everything um Toni Morrison, who read everything, mm-hmm. but they are all who they are because of all of that reading, right? And the the casual reader doesn't really care, you know, or that they're doing other things. Well, I think that's definitely part of it is that we can be creative in, you know, infinite number of ways, but for most people that read, they are, you know, creating in terms of that co-creative act of what you were just saying about being the perceiver that's perceiving Mm -hmm. the book, right? And very much creating that experience of reading it, following along with the stories in the same way that we co-create, so to speak, whenever we watch uh, TV shows or movies or engage in any kind of activity in our our day-to-day. But I, I would say that you know, we've definitely gotten to this point where it's okay to call people consumers, which I, I really mm-hmm. don't like. Mm-hmm. And yet, at the same time, I would say that we've very much been trained to be consumers and to see that as part of our identity. Uh, let's let's just take in the American context where we have the money, we are in control of choosing what it is that we consume. We can write Yelp reviews or Goodreads reviews and generally prioritize the the consuming as like the confirmation of who we are as a person, right? I, I even think this goes for me wow. with with valuing for for a long time that I was uh, initially reading, I thought it was most important to think about my own book count, right? I was like, oh, how many yeah. books have I read? Right. Like, oh, it was it was a huge deal when I got to a hundred books that I had read. It was a huge deal when I read, like, or it was a huge deal in the pre- in the in the in striving towards the goal of reading a book a week, mm-hmm. right? There was a year a couple years ago where I read like eighty two, eighty three, eighty four books in the year. And I remember telling you afterwards, like, yo, like I did that and it wasn't even that great. Like it wasn't that big of a deal. And I had to go through that process. And even then from childhood on to now, I think I've definitely always had that creative spark, that, that drive, that curiosity to create my own stuff. And it was through reading and consuming a lot because I was just so hungry and curious that I started to look at my reading differently, my relationship to reading. Um, you know, a lot of people are totally cool just reading and maybe writing in whatever capacity, but never really trying to get into writing books or creating that entire experience for someone else. But we're definitely at the point where we both are interested in that. And I would say that the more that I read, as well as the more that I write, 
and pay attention to sentences and language and the mm-hmm. rhythm and the vibe and how you can translate all these emotions and images into words that that, that can then be experienced by someone else reading it. Mm-hmm. I think I just bring a lot more. I do bring a lot more of a critical eye to what I read yeah. Uh, because I write and because I want to get better at writing. I think for a long time, I didn't really pay attention to structure of books or structure of language or, you know, really uh, look at something and be like, oh, wow, I just don't like how this is written. I was really never really paying attention to any of those things. And I feel Mm -hmm. like I do a lot more now. Mm -hmm. And for her being someone who's way far, way, way farther down the line as a writer mm-hmm. and reader, I, I can't imagine how much her practice as a writer and really paying attention to every single letter and how stories fit together in, in influences the way that she reads stories. And, and that goes for not just books, yeah. but all kinds of you know TV shows, movies, art in any context. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that there is definitely a difference Mm -hmm. and i'm still i mean of course we're still learning exactly what that is but that that's kind of my initial response to it yeah Hmm. yeah i'm of the belief people can read whatever they want people can write whatever they want at the end of the day though they're not in control of the consequence necessarily or they don't know the consequence of writing that thing like mm-hmm. I totally defend someone's right a white even a white person's right if they wanted to to write a whole book about a black person or any anybody right whether or not it's popular we don't know if it is popular though what if it is popular yeah it's gonna get that work. It's gonna get. Yeah, it's gonna exactly. get. It's gonna get the critique probably. I mean, it. You know, like it, it could be incredibly surprising or illuminating, mm-hmm. um, but you know, also maybe not. I, I think you know something. Something that was really interesting about this essay too was that through all of her meandering and reflecting on her own personal situation, she does come to this final argument of the reader being the one who chooses whether or not to believe in the fiction, who chooses to believe whether or not they trust the author, Mm -hmm. because that's a huge part of whether or not you believe the story that they're telling. And we've, we've just gotten to a point where, you know, most people of color don't trust white folks, right? Like not only to tell, let let alone telling like white story. I mean, obviously, Mm -hmm. you know, you can trust them to tell their own story, if it's autobiographical or inspired as such, mm-hmm. uh, but definitely not trusting like white authors to, to tell our stories in any meaningful way. Um, and I think part of that too, is that with writing from your own kind of like cultural or whatever perspective, mm-hmm. and then there's actually a lot more room for nuance and understanding how there's so much diversity, even within black folks, in particular, yeah, exactly. right? I think the more that we've read, the more that we've started to see that there was never, ever, in any context, like a monolithic 
black people, right? Mm-hmm. Or the Negro, the, the capital N Negro, mm-hmm. you know, like that just, that was never a thing, mm-hmm. right? And, and part of the, this dynamic that we're talking about is that when it's just down to the one token, like black person or the one white person who's an authority on, on all black people, that then is what turns it into some sort of monolith. Mm-hmm. But then you start reading more and realize that was just, that was also an illusion. Mm-hmm. Um, what do you want from fi- fiction? Like, what purpose does reading fi- fiction serve for you? Mm. Yeah, I was mentioning it earlier, but I think that element of surprise is for sure mm-hmm. uh, a huge part of fiction for me. Uh, going back to originally what we were talking about with the books are pop culture conversation, preference for nonfiction or fiction, I think. When I've gone to nonfiction, it was because I wanted basically like affirmation in a book of something that I might have already thought, right? Or or some practical tip for how to do something. Nonfiction is very useful for the practical, the realistic. Mm-hmm. Um, I think obviously there is a lot of great nonfiction when you're getting into history that can also be surprising in its own way. But I think n- fiction or at least the fiction that I've been reading is generally that place that I've seen myself go be engaged in the story and be willing to kind of surrender to the story and just see where I end up, see what I feel, see who I'm thinking about, see how that story is changing the way that I see the world or see writing or see the experience of a book. So that surprise that, that learning that reflection in that way is really how I see like why I go to fiction. Mm. Yeah. What about you? Yeah. I think just to stretch my imagination, I I think I do want to be entertained and captivated, but you know, I think the most inspiring lines in this whole essay are um, page eight here. Belief in a novel for me is a byproduct of a certain kind of sentence. Familiarity, kinship, and compassion will play their part, but if if the sentences don't speak to me, nothing else will. I believe in a sentence of balance, care, rigor, and integrity. The sort of sentence that makes me feel against all empirical evidence to the contrary that what I am reading is, factually speaking, true. And... I couldn't agree more in terms of when I think of books that I literally read every sentence of in the first couple pages, even paragraphs of reading a writer's voice, when you really get that trust that like every new sentence can be something fun, exciting, interesting, weird. When Lily, at that sentence by sentence level, you are just so enwrapped, you read every sentence in the entire book because you have to. It's like you wouldn't want to miss anything that this writer could possibly say. I feel that with the Zadie Smith say, right? It's like everything that she builds, the tempo of the sentences and fiction just allows that more often because the writer isn't too wed to being objective or to arguing something 
right. to making a point exactly. to hitting a word count for exactly. you know, an op-ed. Yeah, I, I would say that it's been fiction for me that mm. when I'm reading it, there's nothing else that I would rather be doing. And then when I'm not reading it, I just can't wait to get back to whatever yeah. that book is. Yeah, You know, with fiction, I finish the book and I'm like, shit you know like i'm like like there's a little bit of grief there and i think that's kind of what you were bringing up before about Mm -hmm. you know uh zadie smith closing the book and just sitting there and being like what you know what was that yeah Mm. and the thing is though with reading because it's your internal voice speaking to you um it feels like you really did go on an adventure in a way that you just didn't with the movie or really? like a TV show even. It like mm-hmm. In terms of the distance traveled in whatever measurement, like the scanning of your eyes across a page, yeah, for the little amount of time, it's much longer than any movie, right? And Yeah, that's true. But just... It is yeah. You're literally transporting yourself because you're reenacting through the imagination. All those things going on. It's not mm-hmm. given to you mm-hmm. like with the movie or with the TV show. <laughs> and I just had a really funny image yeah. of like, you know, in a book, reading through and like every character like has your face, but like different body, <laughs> like different voice and everything. <laughs> right. So you're just seeing that, but you know, you would never see a TV show where every character is like you, you know, <laughs> just wearing wigs and, you know, everything. Right. Do you think, hmm, I think it's hard to think of it in terms of good or bad, but I always think uh, about it with two different art forms, acting and writing. And when someone acts and they have a good performance and someone acts terribly, it is based on how realistic, most of the time, how realistic someone felt the trail of that particular character was, even though the character is fake, too. And that does seem very similar to what she's talking about with fiction. Mm-hmm. Fi- fictionally speaking, true where it is not a real thing and yet it feels real. And I just wonder, yeah, just what that believability really means. Is it is it just a intuition that we all have that, I don't know. I mean, uh, I think that part of it is definitely person's energy how much spirit they bring to the acting or to the writing i would say one one difference or one thing that seems like a difference for acting and writing is that for acting you're portraying one character in in most cases if we're taking like a movie you're only portraying one character whereas for a writer of a novel it's your believability across multiple characters, right? I mean, obviously there are some stories which are mostly written from just one person, Mm -hmm. but even then, I think that there is a slight difference when you can't bring 
your physical appearance, your physical charisma mm. to a role. Yeah. In the same way that I mean, you know, you just you gotta yeah. bring you gotta bring the sauce through yeah. the literal words, right? Yeah. And how you say sentences, a voice and everything. And and I, I think that does make it slightly different. I know what you're saying about right. the the that dynamic, that paradox of being fake and real at the same time. But there is there is that difference that I was just peeping to. Right. Mm, so much. I'm trying to think of I had a lot of notes here. Mm-hmm. Just looking back at what else I wanted to cover. So we didn't really talk about the containers of language um, that you were saying. So she makes this point about the term cultural appropriation and how we kind of assume that that term is what it is that it was handed to us from the gods when in fact you know this is what we have chose to use to talk about this discussion and she kind of you know tongue tongue in cheek says you know if it was called in our personal voyeurism or profound other fascination or cross epiderm reanimation <laughs> that the discussions about what she's talking about would be completely different. Do you think that there is a term or a verbal container aside from this one that really detracts from the discussion about it? Uh, you're saying another term? Yeah. Like other than the ones that she mentioned that detracts from yeah. the like, conversation. Do you, on... do you believe in what she's saying here? And do you think of any other examples? Or do you think that is like kind of overestimating the impact of the term itself? Well, I mean, what she's not saying is that all of those terms that she used are very like. She uh, was joking. No, I know that what I'm saying like. From the terms that she used and cultural appropriation, they are things that you have to like Google or look up. Somebody told you that it was like a bad thing and this is why. Hmm. Like I think that there is a certain kind of uh, inaccessibility to them mm-hmm. where and, and maybe that's where some of the pressure comes from to even uh, well to even consider just like cultural appropriation is that there's so much like good work that's done, let's say in particular with like academics in identifying problems, things that have been going wrong, things mm-hmm. that are still happening, showing how those systems of oppression are still very much at play and doing so in like active and relatively like passive or indirect ways, right? Mm-hmm. There's cultural appropriation, there's, um, there's microaggressions, things like that. But I would say, yeah, I would just say that like there's the there's this conversation that's being had by some people about cultural appropriation that isn't necessarily true to the experience of like day to day living or yeah. creating. Um, yeah, you know, we've talked so much about cultural appropriation and 
you know, it's a very sticky, like, subject. It's definitely, like, a rabbit hole to go into Mm -hmm. just with the boundaries. Um, But I would say, like, for me, as a listener, as a reader, um, there is something very special about being able to connect with people across, you know, these borders of identity that we put up as being, you know, as we were kind of saying earlier, limits to understanding. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think that's that's part of the paradox of you know, seeing how there can be so much that we can relate with other people, but then also having the humility to say like, Hey, like there's some things that I'm not necessarily going to get or, mm-hmm. um, have to learn more about or have to unlearn something. Mm-hmm. And as, you know, as someone that wants to write and create more, um, I think there's even more humility in not just taking something from someone else's culture just because it's cool, mm-hmm. right? But also, like, properly honoring it. And there's a responsibility there, which I think, you know, people might have not really recognized or realized or appreciated so much in the past. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, it's tough. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, I really can't think of any other examples. I think you're totally right the conversations that are had in Twitter or in academia, when you're in it, it feels a lot bigger than it really is of like a problem. Um, But you zoom out even just a little from the college to the neighborhood (laughs) around it, and it's like no one cares, no one's really (laughs) talking about it. But in a theoretical sense, or it's just the biggest deal. So, I feel like it's not so much the terms as it is the perspective of where these debates are really going on. Who is talking? Um, yeah, perspective does change things. Right. Yeah. And there is a, 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 a warping that does happen through media. And yeah, the social media and technology, right? Yeah, like, she totally touches on on that in the last the last page too, with just the whole algorithm conversation, kind of saying how it's a confirmation bias. How yeah, there's so so many data points about what our self is, but it's all just to present us with an even more comfortable, even more tailored. So solution to our problems or prediction about what we're going to do. Mm-hmm. And she kind of tries to contrast that with what a good novel is, you know, kind of forcing the opposite. So mm-hmm. anti-confirmation bias. Um, right. Which is, which is kind of what we've been talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, yeah, I thought that her bringing in technology in that way was important. I think it's also important to know that, you know, uh, novels and books are also the most one of the relatively recent forms of technology. I mean, you know, I I, yeah. I I'm very like open minded about mm-hmm. what counts as tech. No, it is, but it is, but yeah, stories have been around forever. You know, for as long as humans have been around, even potentially longer. But the the form of a book, that story being consumed by someone as an individual is relatively new mm-hmm. and also needing to not only be able to hear stories mm-hmm. because for so long they were told orally mm-hmm. um, and communally, 
but then to then transition into being able to read it on a page, having that kind of mm-hmm. like literacy, it was just a relatively new it is. phenomena, you know, mm-hmm. um, writing has been around for a minute, but for, for this many people to be practicing it is it, you know, we're, we're in new territory on that for sure. Mm-hmm. Well, to close, I am curious from this most rereading of uh, the essay we've been talking about, uh, Zadie Smith's In Defense of Fiction. So where are you interested in going next, either in something that you want to read, maybe write, or talk about for the podcast? Yeah, this goes back to your question I never answered. Actually, like, does this essay want me to... Make, oh, does make it, me want does it convince movie, you want to be Dick or uh, yeah. Will Jim Faulkner? And hard to say. We just have such long to be read lists where there's so many other authors' books that I've been wanting to prioritize for a long time. Yep. Most of them black. Exactly. Like, I still haven't read, you know, Toni Morrison fully. I've only read The Bluest Eye, right? So it's like, you don't want to see things as a zero sum 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 game, but your time is non renewable. <laughs> and so, with the time that I have every day, if I open the Melville and I'm at page one <laughs> of eight oh two, and I'm just like, man, there's so many other books that I'd rather be reading. You know, you read the first couple lines, famous lines. Oh, got it, like. And then you're just like page 400 and you're like, fuck, I'm reading a book about a whale. Like, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> like, even Infinite Jest, you know, all all of the David Foster Walls too. But I feel like the length of that book just feels like kind of an ego thing. Whereas like, oh yeah, I'm just 800 pages into this guy's mind feeling like it's deep complex when it could have been 200 pages and saved me a lot of time you know yeah what really can be expressed in all that time is just the endurance and the patience Mm -hmm. you know so but i think every year i do kind of get an essay where i'm motivated to read more classic books quote unquote but then in the back of my mind i'm always like what really makes them classic yes they have endured over a long time Yes, they're really good writing. There's other things that I want to read. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, and you know, I, I was being, I was being funny about the the Moby Dick and right. William Faulkner, just because, as we both know, we're very intentional about reading mostly black authors, as well as mentioning before, just generally getting familiar with more authors of color of any, you know, nationality, culture, whatever um, time frame. I think for me, especially with reading more poetry, I actually love that I get to travel through poetry and read from South Asian poets and people like Rumi or Latin American poets and everything. And, you know, in a way, like there's going in the direction of, oh, did Zadie Smith convince us to read like these these classic, Mm -hmm. these classic canonized books? Mm -hmm. Um, But then there's also like, how well did she convince us to read something that's a little bit outside of our right. like realm, but not necessarily like those things that are, you know, uh, 
put up by white folks is what everyone should be reading, you know. I will say, though, when a book is separated from you by by time, by longer amount, that's a really annoying way of saying when a book is older. Um, <laughs> um, <laughs> that's hilarious. When a book is older and it can still feel so relevant, it is a cool feeling. Yeah, it is. I did have it is. A, a friend a couple years ago read Madame Bovary 2, and she said crazy things about it, said it was a great book, right? Written by a French guy, you know, a long time ago. Yeah. And so I think the still the difficulty, though, for me, and this is a choice, a choice that I could be making, but... For so many of the classics, it seems like it becomes the axis in which you judge everything else, whether or not it's good. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, does it stand up against this? When I'm like, could I possibly curate my own taste and what I see as good based on a different set of books? Oh, for sure. You know, yeah. I think some might be a rite of passage and I I do want to read the Anna Karenina or the um, I don't know why I was only thinking of Tolstoy books uh, yeah what War and Peace yeah War and Peace exactly I was just thinking of War and Peace yeah I, I want to read them because uh, I know that they're dense great writing Tolstoy is a great writer I've read a lot a lot of his short stories I don't know. I guess I have no excuse other than the time and the zero-sum game of my time and wanting to read other writers first. But I will get there, you know? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, what was really interesting to me um, was when I was reading about On Earth, We're Briefly Gorgeous, Ocean Mm -hmm. Vuong talked about, like, there was a list of, like, the 10 books that influenced uh, his own novel, Mm -hmm. and Moby Dick was on there, and he was saying how it was, uh, you know, obviously beautifully written, wild story, also had, was ahead of its time in terms of just like those, that critical kind of like insight into whiteness and its mm. its problems. And I really appreciated that. I, you know, obviously being into water, I'm always curious for how that forms, how that incorporates itself in the stories. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it is, it is like kind of just a practice in choosing what we want to pour attention into and when and why I think the the pressure to have read yeah. a book like Infinite Jest is just mm. not even worth it you know like it, yeah. it, it makes it almost less that attractive even lower on the, on well no it no it is but but what I'm saying is that there's like a yes that pressure used to get me a lot but now it actually makes those books even less attractive to read mm-hmm. because they're are potentially so many more books that will hit, they'll help me learn and, you know, improve my own craft with like writing and reading and just being a, a, a person that's interested in the world. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, that doesn't have to have some sort of like external pressure from people I don't know to be like, Oh yeah, exactly. you should have, you should have had read this book. Right. Yeah. Right. But do you have any, Last lines from the essay or? Oh, for sure. Yeah. The one, the one that I really wanted to share out loud, uh, was this one on compassion Mm. and 
it's actually a it's actually a quote from the Colombian writer Hector Abad um, that was uh, that was referenced by Zadie Smith, where he says compassion is largely a quality of the imagination. It consists of the ability to imagine what we would feel if we were suffering the same situation. It has always seemed to me that people without compassion lack a literary imagination. The capacity great novels give us for putting ourselves in another's place and are incapable of seeing that life has many twists and turns and that at any given moment we could find ourselves in someone else's shoes, suffering pain, poverty, oppression, injustice, or torture. I would say, you know, uh, Zay Smith definitely brings this up as provoking the question of fiction as this creator of compassion or a vehicle for containment, right? And controlling people's stories. Um, I would say that regardless of the answer to that question, I think we have definitely started to think more about compassion for ourselves and other people and just generally striving for it. And so that's why I do appreciate this quote for thinking about compassion as, you know, an ability of the imagination, something that we can choose to practice and strengthen. Um, but also always like always everyone has access to it, um, to the extent that we can right practice that agency to have compassion and, and really connect with other people in a meaningful way. Mm-hmm. So that's how I was looking at it. Hmm. Incredible. Every reader, if you're passionate about reading, if you like reading, I highly recommend this essay. It can be found in PDF form online. Look up Fascinated to Presume in Defense of Fiction by Zadie Smith PDF because I know that the New York Review of Books can have a paywall, but it should be the first link. Um, this is just such an incredible piece. I'm so glad we got to talk about it again. Might have to talk about it a second time with a guest or uh, just us again, but this, yeah. this, this has been great, bro. Yeah, no, it was really fun, really fun getting into it. I'm glad that we got to get into an essay mm-hmm. on, a, on a one-on-one and... I'm really excited for having it in conversation as we continue on, as well as bringing more essays into that as well. That's what I'm saying. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Real Ballers Read podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a comment and subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And we are so excited to hear your feedback and we will catch you in the next episode.